Talk Dog to Me podcast. I'm Blake Fellows. Happy New Year, first of all. It's the first one that we're going to be releasing after after the New Year's break and the Christmas break. So, hope Christmas is alright. Thank you again for listening. Thank you to Kenneth Red, SMJ Brady and Elite Football Development as ever for supporting and keeping the podcast going. This is um, this is a great one. I think I think everyone's a great one because I'm an absolute Derby geek on a but um, not as controversial as I thought. Although he does go into some detail about the three amigos and and his his difficult period at Derby County. But Phil Brown, uh, former Hull, Southend and Derby County manager, spoke really well actually. Um, he's over in India at the minute doing a bit of media work. He's managed over there, so we managed to get him in between games in India just to have a catch up about his time at Hull, Derby, his playing career, his friendship with Bobby Davison, and yeah, it's a really good chat. So enjoy his uh, former Derby manager, Phil Brown. Welcome on to, to Total Derby to me, Phil Brown, all the way from India, is it, at the minute? Goa, in India, yes. Southern, uh, is it south? I think it's southwest, southwest India. Wow, what takes you over there then? This year's ISL, uh, I'm saying this year's ISL, it's been going for seven years now, the Indian Super League. Uh, and I've, I'm into branding now because I'm working for the media side of things, so it's a hero ISL, I should say. Um <laughs> And it's, uh, yeah, I've been invited across by Star Sports, which is their TV version of Sky Sports. Uh, So it's quite a big gig over here, you know. And um, I mean, some of the games are getting, you know, they're getting sent to countries all over Australasia, Asia. Uh, Sometimes the the audience can be 230, 240 million. Um, So it's, it's quite a big gig, you know. I'm working for IMG Reliance. And uh, just sort of sitting this side of the fence at the moment, just having a look at football from a different angle, which I've got to say, Blake, it's, it's uh, really enjoyable, but it's, um, it's different. It's different when you're in a production meeting as opposed to a team meeting, you know, leading up to a game of football with a group of players, you know. So it's, uh, it's very interesting. I'm enjoying it. What's the, the standard like out there? Is it comparable to over here? Um, it's a good question. Um, it's very difficult to answer the, the question in as much as one team versus another team. You can see some really good slick passing moves of, of quality, you know, like the quality of the Premier League, you know, real quality football. But um, you have to hold the thought because you can't always get that because there's, there's a, a sort of eclectic mix of, of foreign players from all over the world. And... Um, and, eight, and Indian boys as well, you know, obviously the rules are at the moment uh, 18 Indian boys in a squad of 25 and seven foreign players. But that's going to go down to three and one. And what I mean by three and one is you're allowed to play five foreign players, one of them which needs to be from Australasia. And uh, that's going to come down to three and one. So they're really, there's a big drive towards Indian, the promotion of Indian footballers. And I've got to say it. Um, there's a lot of young Indian talent. The only downside to it, you, you don't know how old they are. No idea how old they are. The, the passports have been, you know, disposed of a long, long time ago. So if somebody says they're 20, you've got to... I don't know how the hell you check it, to tell you the truth. But uh, it's uh, there's some quality. There is some quality. And I would say the overall standard would be probably top-end first division. Really? Yeah, I would say top-end first division. Can you, you see... Know, when you, when you when you put the Indians when you 
when you get a good group of foreign players and then you put the Indians with it, you know. A lot, I could talk all night about this, Blake, but I know we're going to talk about me um, and my career. But um, when I first came over, which was only two, just over two years ago, there was, um, I think the majority of players were coming for the last paycheck. And uh, prior to me coming, you know, so the launch of the ISL, which is uh, anniversarily, if there's such a word, is celebrating tonight its 500th game. So um, the game is Northeast are playing, I should know this, and I'm going to have to go to my notes now. Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, who's Northeast playing? <laughs> I've got, you see, the, the worst thing is, you know, you've got to study all 11 teams. That's now, the you thing. Know, so <laughs> now you're on the media side. So I've been working at Goa versus Chennai for tomorrow's game. But it's uh, it's northeast versus Jamshedpur tonight, and um, it's the 500th game. But if you go back to the the inception, the early days, there was a lot of um, guys just coming across the end, just taking money out of the game, and it was ridiculous. You know, we're getting massive, big, big, big players just on a last paycheck of a million, two million, three million quid, and they're not really contributing anything to the game. But now you've got young players coming. You know, we've just had Magoma sign. Uh, for SC East Bengal, and he, he's played four years in the championship at Birmingham. Um, yeah. You know, I could go on and on, but uh, we're not here to talk about that. But um, yeah, it's it, it's improving. The standards definitely improving. And I would have said, push everything together. Everybody playing their best team. It's top end first division. You're on the media side now. You just touched on uh, quickly. Have you got an itch to get back in the changing room and, and back managing? I I think I'll always have that, Blake. I think um, that's in me it's under my skin I can't get out um, I, I suppose this is one way of relieving that kind of frustration as it were um, by being still heavily involved and I'm almost like scouting over here you're looking at every game and every angle and every coach's style of play um, so you know when you're out of work what what the LMA and uh, what other managers and coaches tell you to do is the best thing to do is keep yourself Involved in the game at some stage as, or, or somehow, and um, and go and watch coaches coach and uh, watch managers talk to managers, uh, interview them, uh, just go to games. But the, the pandemic's been a, a big bugbear where that's concerned. I've not been able to go to games. So when I was in England, albeit I was watching games on the TV, um, I, I really I wasn't getting any closer to the game. In fact, I was getting further away. So coming to India geographically for sure I've moved further away but from a manager and coaching perspective I've really moved closer to it you know because Robbie Fowler's over here I've been uh, in contact with him Owen Coyle's over here I've been in contact with him and even going to one of the probably the most experienced guy in the game over here Stuart Baxter uh, born in Wolverhampton you know he's um, English born started his days off at Preston as a player, but he, he's travelled the world. He's been South Africa, Australia, you name it. He's been national team manager, domestic manager. So I'm, I'm sort of keeping in touch with all of them and the Spanish coaches. There's a strong influence of Spanish coaching over here. So I'm as, probably as close to being in a changing room now um, as I've ever been out of the game. Uh, but that frustration will never leave me. I'll always want to coach my own team and manage my own team and pit me wits against... Uh, coaches and managers as opposed to analysing it, you know. Going right back to, to before your playing days, what are your first, your first memories getting involved with the game and, and getting involved in, in playing side? My 
um, early days, which doesn't happen these days. I I, uh, I saved my time as an electrician, so I wasn't I didn't come readily into football until later. Um, so leaving school at 16, um, I had a couple of options, opportunities, and it was um, it, it was difficult at the time. I, I don't know if you remember um, a head. Well, it was a chemistry teacher or a head teacher called Brendan Foster. He was a and then you know he's an Olympic athlete at the time, and he was my chemistry teacher, and he wanted me to become an athlete. He wanted me to become a runner. Um, we were involved in a lot of uh, races cross country wise. Um, he probably gave me the first in, inside information on tactics with regards to races. You know, if you remember, Brennan, Brennan used to run a 10,000 meter and he used to smash international fields with three or four or five laps of sub 60 seconds in the middle of a 10,000 meter race. It was ridiculous, but that, that became a norm, you know, that became a, a tactic within racing. So he opened me, opened me mind to tactics and then uh, I played Sunday League football basically uh, until um, Hartlepool United came along. Uh, one of the directors uh, of Hartlepool United was a northeast born lad and uh, he was watching a Sunday League game of which I was playing and invited me down to train with the reserves uh, as a 19-year-old and the rest history. You know, I signed me first pro contract at 20 and, um, and got me indenture forms as an electrician at the same on the same day uh so that that was me up and running that's that's incredible and you, early on in your career is it true you played with bobby davison bobby i played with uh Dabo. uh we played in a uh, football team called the red duster he was nicknamed duster actually through his through his career um at derby which um you know derby huddersfield he, he played quite a few um and bobby bobby was just Pace personified in Sunday. Imagine that in Sunday League football, he would just like stick it in behind, and it's a goal. Um, and he obviously got his career from from that. Obviously, developed into a better player than just a runner. But um, Sunday League football, yeah, I played. Uh, I played with Bobby in a team called the Red Duster. The Red. What what kind of level was that then? Oh, Sunday League. Is it? Um, it's. Uh, Pub teams on a Sunday at the Benz Park in South Shields. Um, probably half the opposition was half cut. <laughs> and um, half of our team was probably half cut as well. But me and, me and Bobby were professionals. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we didn't drink. We enjoyed the game and then he had a pint afterwards. It was, it was good camaraderie, but it gave you an insight into just the, the rough and ready times of football. I mean, we were 16, 17, 18 year old and you were playing up against men. And you were learning very, very quickly. Put wool on your back. We used to call it, puts a little bit of wool on your back. You know, gives you a little bit of experience. But when you go past a, a guy that's had a couple of pints uh, for his Sunday lunch and you're, you're quick. So Bobby off quite often got hacked down is, is the old terminology, hacked down. Uh, but there wasn't any referees around that were keeping up, keeping up with Bob. So Bobby could get hacked down, get up and, and still finish it, you know. So, yeah, we, we played together. I'm still, we're still in touch. I've just actually uh, a couple of days back, me and him were um, touching base on LinkedIn. Really? Yeah. Oh, so that's good to hear. It's good to hear. And he's obviously a massive legend here, isn't he? Through his, his goal scoring in the mid eighties and everything. So it's it's amazing to hear you're still in touch with him. Well, he's uh, he's looking for work, and um, and obviously I'm out of work but in work at the same time. So I've got probably this side of the fence getting. You're getting a portfolio of, of contacts and stuff like that, um, yeah. so it's um, it's interesting. But I'll 
you know, if I could do anything for Bob, I would do and, and vice versa. We go back a long, long way, long way. Do you think with how, how uh, the game's changed in that time, obviously you two both went on to play professionally, The in terms of having to play against men, there's obviously no reserve football anymore and, and that character building of getting hacked down and having to get back up and, and stuff like that. Do you think that's missing a bit now? It's missing and uh, I'm not saying it needs to come back by any stretch of the imagination, but that chunk of experience, that chunk of um, growing up quicker, if, if there's... If there's such a phrase and terminology that could be fit what you're saying. You grew up, you grew up very quick. You know, you, by the time you were 18, you weren't uh, this formed athlete, what you are today, you know, cause everybody talks, Oh, look at the size of him. Look how quick he is. Look at his technical ability. But that rawness, that, um, that rarity of um, being able to stand up to a dressing down in the changing room from a manager, for instance, as early as 18, um, being able to, you know, get up from being absolutely smashed last man, get up and, and continue to have the presence of mind to stick the ball in the back of the net. That was all um, a priceless commodity in, in the uh, in the old days. Nowadays, it's um, it's your athleticism. It's, you know, if you've grown up quick, uh, it's a different world we live in now. Uh, you know, the, um, the the advent of social media and, and, and stuff like that is just a, a totally different world. Funnily enough, we were talking about this. We were just discussing this on... Um, a, um, a, a program called Football United over in India and uh, one of the things I spotted one of the players and I've got lots of Indian coaches and, and people that uh, are in contact with me I spotted one of the players and I went public and said if this lad gets his head down and, and concentrates on his work and does this, that, this, this and this he'll become a player he'll become a national team player this, that and the other everybody to a man came back to me spends too much time on social media now, the lad turns out he's only 20-year-old 20, 20 and played like six, seven games in the ISL. But you, why would you sacrifice a career just because of social media? But there are a lot of people do. You know, they're more interested having having so many hits on a, on a media website or, or so many followers or, or whatever. They're more interested in that than playing maybe 15 years in a game of football where they can earn a fortune, absolute fortune. But in our day, it was all about... If some guy uh, told you to do something, you did it. You did it double quick, you know. And, and the legends that you, you know, Derby County can can boast. If somebody said that to Bobby Davison, I'm sure Bobby Davison would would come on this show if he's not already been on this show and, and give you many an example of that, you know. Yeah, definitely. What would you? Oh, hopefully, we we'll get Bobby on one day. That'd be that'd be good. Yeah. Um, what would you say the highlight of your of your playing career was? Playing career. Um, it was a, a difficult career. You know, I started in the lower leagues and I didn't really progress until I was about 27, I think it was, 27 when I moved to Bolton Wanderers. Mm. And uh, driving down the A Treble 6, uh, which is the road that lead to, led to the old Burnden Park, mm. uh, and meeting Nat Lofthouse on my mother's say-so. My mother said to me, if you're going to Bolton Wanderers, if you're going to Burn Burnden Park today, make sure you, you say hello to, to Nat Lofthouse. <laughs> that was a... That was something that your mother said, you know, not like your father said. So I had a knock at his door. Having had the interview with Phil Neal and Mick Brown, who were the manager and the assistant manager, I had to leave that office and say to the, the new gaffer, obviously, because I'd signed, you don't mind if I say hello to that loft house because my mother told me to say it. Um, so that's a highlight off the field of play. But on the field of play, it was probably, um, you know, playing uh, championship for one season. I had one season in the championship. Um and uh, we got promoted and um, 
I had a couple of promotions at Bolton Wanderers. I had a, um, a couple of Wembley's, Wembley appearances, uh, probably three in total, uh, playing-wise, but winning the old Sherpa Van, Sherpa Van Trophy, uh, that was a highlight, because uh, that was my first time at Wembley, and all my family came to that. Um, so it wasn't, I wouldn't have said it was the most, um, you know, career, you know, trophy-strewn career, but it was... Um, it was one of longevity. It was one of digging in. It was one of really learning, uh, probably for my time after playing. You know, that I always wanted to, having met uh, Bruce Rioch and then uh, consequently or subsequently Sam Allardyce, I then started developing um, a real thirst, hunger for football management and coaching. I was, I was going to go back and, and finish... Uh, what I'd started, obviously, I started my time as an electrician and I had businesses uh, off the field of play, which a lot of people didn't didn't really take much care or notice off the field activities. Mm. But um, I certainly did. And um, I had a, a, a restaurant, I had a bar, I had a nightclub, I had an electrical business. Uh, but when I met Bruce Rioch when I was 32, 33-year-old at Paul Mondras, he said, uh, don't, don't for one minute think about leaving the game. You are destined to stay in this game. You've been a captain in changing rooms since you were 22 year old. That in itself tells you what managers think of you. So don't for one minute think about leaving the game when you stop playing. You've got to start doing your badges. So I did. And, um, and then I fortunately bumped into Sam Allardyce at the end of my career and uh, he took me onto the coaching side. So, and then the rest is history, as it were, you know. So would you say uh, Bruce Rioch and, and Sam Allardyce both massive influences on you, on you getting into the management side of it? Bruce um, was a real staunch, you know, you've heard about the, the discipline side of things, but he really was a good man manager. You know, he really had um, a lot of time for you. He had a, he didn't suffer fools gladly. He was such a ooh, hard man. Um, first training session at Burnden Park, fully clothed, fully, tracks, um, fully um, stripped up. And he came and went on 11 v 11, never forget it. Very first training session, eleven v eleven, and he was dressed in one of the in one of the kits. So it was like the home and the away kit, and I was playing in the first team at the time, and he was playing in the reserves, or or shall we say the second eleven. And uh, he smashed into Mark Patterson, you know, unceremoniously. Didn't have any uh, apologies for it whatsoever. But Mark Patterson was our tough cookie in midfield, little hard man from from Blackburn and he smashed into him and Paddy wiped out on the floor and then he smashed into me captain uh, and he, he broke me rib but I, he, uh, he said he had said these words before the game don't ever show anybody that you're injured don't ever show anybody that you're hurt and it was just um, it, 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 I never, never forget it it's like I can hear him saying it it was like this has stayed with me for the rest of my life my dad used to say the same and here we have Bruce Rioch, my manager now saying, don't ever show anybody you're hurt. And he's brought me rib and I can hardly breathe here. And I'm still playing on and I'm thinking, this is crazy. This, it's absolutely crazy. But I'm, I'm with him from day one, from minute one, I was with him. And, um, and that was something I, I've tried to instill in my teams, you know, a, a hardness, a roughness, a, um, you know, never say die kind of attitude mentality. But he also had a technical side of him that 
went on to beat Liverpool at Anfield, mm. Arsenal <clears throat> at Highbury. And if you wanted to say, were they highlights of my career? Yes, games like that were highlights of my career. Individual games like that were, you know, great cup runs, but we never won anything at the end because we were a first division club or a championship mm. club or whatever you want to call it. But we had some magnificent days. Everton at Goodison, we beat them. Mm. Um, you know, Highbury, going to Highbury, having drew 2-2 at Burnham Park, went to Highbury on a Tuesday night, you know, because he used to play the replay straight away in the FA Cup in them days. Went to Highbury, beat them 3-1, comprehensively. So he was a tactician at the same time as this hard disciplinarian. And on the back of that, he got the job at Arsenal, without a shadow of a doubt. Without a shadow of a doubt. So... Meeting Bruce and then um, and then obviously meeting another um, sort of unforgiving character in Sam Allardyce, who um, surprised me how much of a tactician he was. Surprised me how much of a of a never left any stone unturned kind of manager, and uh, obviously still in the game because of that. I've got a, a good friend who I used to work with, Craig Ramage, who actually played under him at, at Notts County. And he always says to me that it's it's actually underrated his management and and the tactics wise. He's always said that to me that it's it's not he's not just this long ball kind of manager. He is a, he is a thinker and a tactician of the game, isn't he? Well, he he can also take um, whatever you do, whatever you see, you can take it on the chin, mm. whatever you see. You know, so the long ball tactic was a comment by um, Graham Souness on Match of the Day because uh, we had been Anfield and beat him. We, we turned Anf- uh, Liverpool over at Anfield and he was saying it was long ball, it was rubbish, it was in your face, it was, you know, the, the, the game's got no place for it. Wow, hold on a second. What about your game, Graham? You played that way. You smashed into people. You, you were rough and tumble, rough and ready and you enforced the Liverpool way on the opposition. Then there was better players than Graham around, technically, but he was the real tough guy in midfield. What's wrong with that? Nothing. So Sam went into that, but then also played with J.J. Kocha, Yuri Yorkaev, Ivan Campo, Fernando Hierro. I could go on and on and on. You didn't play long ball with them players, but he accepted, okay, you think we'll play long ball? We'll take that, and then we'll play our way. Hmm. So he was big enough, strong enough, wise enough, and hard enough to understand that people are going to give you a stick. You might as well just take it. Take it from the best. Go on, Graham said it must be right. <laughs> Just before you got your first uh, management role, you went. We was back at Bolton with a, there's a theme here. Another Derby legend, Colin Todd. Oh, aye, aye, <laughs> absolutely. That's um, Colin was an absolute purist kind of manager. He just wanted the best players. All he said, all he witnessed, all he saw was quality, and he tried to get that quality on the field of play. Sam saw quality and then he tried to maximise that, that quality. So if you weren't having a good day um, with Collins' players, Collins' ex, or Collins' reason behind that was, okay, all great players have off days. Sam squeezed the living daylights out of you so he didn't have many of them off days. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So um, maximising resources, Sam Allardyce, recognising top quality players, Colin Todd, put the two of them together. who You've got the best manager in the world. But Colin had his way and um, that was his way. And I, I appreciated that and I took whatever I needed from that. 
Sam had his weight and I took whatever I, I needed from that. And you put the two together and I think that's the way I went forward, actually. I tried to go forward that way. Who do you think had the most influence over your playing career and managers you worked with as a coach as, as you went into management? Who do you think you took the most from? Um, you do take bits from everybody, but I would have to say it would be Sam. It would probably yeah. be it would probably be Sam. But from a playing perspective, because I didn't get Sam until I was 38-year-old, you know, so I was starting to move. I had started to move that side of the fence um, when he faithfully had a, an interview with him. Um, and he found me at the end of it. This is how clever he is. It was a Thursday night. I'm playing still. I'm a player coach. Brownie, I get a call. Brownie, what are you doing? Um, I'm playing snooker. Where? Uh, local um, snooker pub, uh, snooker club. Do they serve alcohol? Yes. I'll be down in about five minutes. No problem. Down he comes, gets the drinks in, has the interview. So I'm getting interviewed for the job to become player coach. <laughs> and he, he says, and by the way, you're playing on that day, so you're fined a week's wages for having a drink on a Thursday night. <laughs> and he had bought, he had bought it. So um, that was that was Sam. Um, Colin, um, sorry, Bruce from a playing side of thing, sort of give me um, uh, give me the sort of the first inkling. He lit, he lit the bulb. Mm. He lit the bulb that gave me that first move in the right direction. And then meeting Sam at the right time was just, for me, priceless. Hence the reason why I'm still in the game. Yeah, definitely. No, I've heard nothing but for good things about, about Big Sam. Um Coming to, to Derby, then your first real manage, managerial role from from be, just coaching. How did that? How did it first come about? Being offered the job and, and going for it. I um, when Sam got the job, he had been in Notts County. We, we he got the sack at, at Blackpool, and I moved with Colin to Bolton Wanderers. Mm. So I already had um, been promoted to the Premier League, and we were relegated from the Premier League the following year. But we we won the the championship by a long way under Colin, playing beautiful football, by the way, fabulous football. Uh, I think we got 99 points, 100 goals, you know, the records, we smashed them out of sight. Then we went in the, in the Premier League and, and found it tough. So six or seven, eight games into the following year, Colin resigned and I took over as caretaker manager. Sam was already, had left Blackpool under a cloud. Oyston was in jail. He sacked them from being in jail. The rest's history. He then takes up the position at Notts County. does a great job. So um, it was one of them where I I accepted the fact that Sam was coming. I'd worked with him before. The hierarchy at Bolton were thinking, put these two together. Um, and we've got the dream team kind of thing. Uh, but I had had five games as a caretaker manager and won four of them. So I automatically thought that the job was going to be mine. So when the big man walked in that fateful Sunday... Uh, we had a long afternoon talking about um, working together again and I absolutely agreed that it, it, it would work. But he implored me not to go and apply for every job under the sun. Knew that I wanted to be a manager, which was the clarity that he needed, but he didn't want me to undermine that situation, undermine the partnership by applying for every job. So in six years together with unprecedented success, you know, promotion and then survival campaigns in the Premier League and then finishing off in Europe. Uh, I had only applied for three jobs. Uh, Burnley, West Bromwich Albion and then Derby County. 
I'm, I, I'm knocked at the door very closely at Burnley and I'm trying to think who got the job and I should know this, but I, I finished second. At West Brom, Brian Robson got the job and I finished second. And at Derby, I got the position. Uh, but I never, you know, I told Sam every time to the extent where him, Phil Garcade, rest his soul, um, they both put themselves as um, a referee on my CV. And what a better referee can you have than your owner or chairman of your present club and your manager who are both recommending you for the position. So the Derby board took that as a good recommendation and I got the job. And, um, and the rest is history, as it were. But it was such a... Um, and I don't want to sound like I've got uh, a bitter pill or anything like that. I just got Derby at the wrong time. I just got Derby County at the wrong time. It was such a... My career was off and running. I wanted that to be my first and most successful job in management. And I just... I walked into a, a catalogue of mistakes and errors made by people above me that were trying to... Well, they should have been trying to educate me with regards to boards of directors. You know, like... And I'm, honestly, I'm not making any excuses. We didn't win enough games. Once you don't win enough games, supporters then start questioning your tactics and your team selection. And, and I get I get that. I've got no hard feelings whatsoever. It was the biggest, steepest learning curve that any future manager could ever have uh, wanted or have, or have imagined. But being Derby, I, I really I wanted to succeed with it. I really did. Uh, great training ground. They had invested the Seth Johnson money in a, in a wonderful complex uh, training ground. I had an ally um, in the academy manager, uh, Terry Wesley. Uh, he had produced lots of, of good talent, fantastic talent. It was set up for it was set up for me to succeed, and then behind the scenes, which I couldn't go, I couldn't go public with, mm. you know, the murder Mackay situation. Um, the, uh, the finance director, you name it. There was a lot of skullduggery going on in the background that I couldn't go public with. So for all, it only lasted a short space of time. I learned so much from that, that time at Derby that set me up for the whole city um, success. And I wish it had been Derby. I really do. I wish it had been Derby. But uh, it wasn't to be. And um, obviously, eight and a half months down the line, I, I had that fateful arm round the shoulder Walk around, you know, the three pitches that you've got in front of the the, uh, the manager's office. Walk around the three pitches two or three times. Murder Mackay, trying to he tried to talk me into sacking Dean Holdsworth and my um, and my chief scout and uh, throwing them under a bus. He tried to talk me into that, and I'm just a I'm not that kind of guy. You've got the wrong kind of guy, Murdo. You know, it's um, I'm an honourable man. I've brought them in. The first one to go will be me. And if they go as well, they go as well. But the first one to go will be me. I will never throw anybody under the bus. I know it was a difficult, it was a difficult period for the club, I know financially and everything. But do you think if you'd have just been left to do what what you do, which is manage, you, you maybe would have still got some more success? I I would yeah. guarantee that. I would really guarantee that. You cannot have <clears throat> you cannot have a chief executive or a director of football um, doing deals. With players that I wanted to bring in, don't get me wrong, some of the players I wanted to bring in, some of the players he wanted to bring in, and it was just a, an unbelievable coincidence that all the players that he wanted to bring in, he was successful with negotiations with. Some of the players I wanted to bring in, he was unsuccessful. Now, let me paint a picture. He had a, 
as you walk into that reception area at the training ground, Manor Farm, isn't it? Moor Farm. Moor Farm, Moor yeah. Farm, sorry, apologies. Um, you walk in there, you've got a reception to your right-hand side, you've got his office to the left-hand side, mm. and then behind the reception, you've got my office. And it would always be a case of a player, an agent, how many representatives, it doesn't matter. They would always come in, go straight to the left-hand side, into that office, and then the deal would be done. If he wanted the player, it would definitely be done. And then they would come into my office, and then I would talk, I would talk football to them. Um, I don't think that is the right way. I should be involved in them negotiations. I should be involved in whatever deals I'm signing off, which I eventually had to. I had to put pen to paper on these deals. I should be the one that not has to negotiate. I'm not bothered about the negotiation side of it, but just has to be the one that listens to it. So you know where the money's going. You know where the money's going. So if it's going to an agent or it's going to a player or it's going to Murdo or it's going somewhere else, I would then blow that wide open. That would never happen in my football club. And it never happened in any of the football clubs that I've ever worked with. And the, the success that I've had is being open and transparent at Hull City at Southend United. Southend United had a one-man band. He ran the show. So I had one man to answer to. So that in itself is a success story because of um, transparency. So if it had transparency at Derby County, I don't know what would have happened. I would have loved to have succeeded. But, you know, as I say, I'm not here to bemoan my time. The rest is history, you know. Yeah. What's your overriding emotion in looking back at your time at, at Derby? Is it Loved just... it. Yeah. I really loved it. It's a great football club that deserves... Uh, to be looked after and managed properly and um, and played football the right way, you know. I've always said it. If you can stand on the terraces as a manager, you're the manager, you go into the crowd. If you can stand on the terraces as a manager and they don't give you stick because of the style of football that you play, then it's unity. You become one. And I, I've done that as a, as a supporter. You know, I've stood on the terraces at Sunderland. Um, that was my club. And one day... F- Fingers crossed, hopefully I'll manage Sunderland one day. But um, I've stood on the terraces and understood what them people wanted, you know. They wanted a hard, they wanted a, a team that worked hard because they worked hard. So they wanted parity with regards to what they've done during the course of the week. They want to come on a Saturday and see a group of 11 players that are getting paid to work hard. The ability side of it then comes out. If they see that, wow, they go home. They've seen this and they've seen that and they've seen whatever. But they wanted graft. You, you get that first. You get the ability that comes out. And if they see that, they'll accept defeat. They'll accept a little bit of failure. They want to see success. Of course they do. But I'm going back to the 1973 FA Cup final where Bob Stoko just got a tune out of a group of players that beat the mighty Leeds, you know. Um, and it, it, that's, all I, that's all I wanted to do as a manager. I wanted to go and be able to stand on them terraces shoulder to shoulder with Derby County fans. And them to be saying, well, he's safe in here because we're playing the right kind of football. It's a nice, so, it's a nice way of thinking. I've not, I've not heard that before. I, I really like that. You mentioned, um, you mentioned about the Sunderland job. But is that that's obviously your dream job? And it, it was recently, it was recently available. Was that something you went in for, or is it something you can't talk about? You can't really. I mean, I'm over here, and uh, you get two weeks quarantine to come back. I think Sunderland's needs are now. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, 
I'm probably low down on the list. But uh, no, the, the guy that I'm actually working with over here, he's, he's CEO of the ISL, is a lad called Martin Bain. And, and you've seen Sunderland Till I Die. And he was the chief executive at Sunderland. He was a very successful chief executive at Rangers. Um, and it, probably the um, Sunderland Till I Die um, Netflix um, video episodes, whatever, it didn't really paint a good picture of, of Sunderland as a club. Uh, football-wise or business-wise, but it certainly painted the, the same picture as what I see of Derby County. You know, yeah. fan, fans drive it. Fans drive your club. You'll never... It's the one constant in the game, and it's the same at Sunderland. Uh, and it's it'll probably... I'm not doing anybody a disservice here. It's probably the same worldwide, you know, all the way around the world. And I'm getting it in India. I'm, I'm pockets of India. You know, the size of India. India is probably the size of Europe and some more, you know. So when I say I'm in Goa, it's probably the size of Germany, you know. So, you know, you, you know what I mean. So, you put things into perspective. You've got a you've got a, a country called Goa, basically, yeah. within the within the country of India. So, um, you know, the fans are passionate still, and everybody says, "I cricket's the the number one." Even if it's ninety percent cricket and ten percent football, that ten percent of a population of one point four billion is still more than in England. It's still yeah. more than in Europe, and. So, you know, that puts it into perspective. So you, you've got something to aim at here with regards to producing young players. And I'm hoping one day that we do. And I say we because I've been over here and it's my third time, my third season over here, you know. Going on from, from Derby to, to Hull, uh, was that the <coughs> highlight of your managerial career? Promotion to the Premier League and, and getting Hull up there and being a Premier League manager? Yeah, you would, you would say... Um, yeah, it's definitely the highlight of, of my career. I've had um, more highlights in management than what I have um, in playing, mm. uh, which suggests I wasn't a great player because great players don't make great managers. <laughs> um, but um, no, I, I've really enjoyed this side of the fence. I know a lot of coaches and managers, when asked the question, what would you, what would you rather be? What would you rather have? And they always say, playing. You can never, ever replace the playing. Not for me, not for one minute, not for one minute. Um, I've, I've enjoyed coaching, I've enjoyed the assisting the manager and I've certainly enjoyed the management side of things. Even in the face of adversity, it's, it's, it gets you out of bed in the morning to try and resolve that issue, resolve that problem. And to say I had 16, 17, 18 hour days sometimes for, for Derby County, um, that continued, it doesn't change, that continues through your career. And the success we had at uh, at Old City was was born out of getting a group of people together that were all, and I'm talking from the chairman, the owners, right the way through, the backroom staff to the players, um, getting everybody on the same page, getting everybody in the same. It's amazing what you can achieve mm. when you get everybody. And I've heard it many a time said by motivators when you when you get everybody singing from the same hymn sheet. It's, you'd be surprised at what you can achieve and we we did the unthinkable 104 years in the wilderness and then get them to the Premier League yeah it was a great achievement and I really enjoyed it I've got to ask you because I did put on social media that you were, you were going to come on and ask for questions and whatnot and even from Derby fans one of the, the things people want to know is about the team talk at Man City that time on the on the pitch what was what, how did that come about? It came about um, born out of um, frustration in the first half first and foremost and I think what you've done nicely, Blake, is covered covered everything, you know, because I'm going back to, it was also born out of Sunday League football. You got sat down at half-time and you got spoken to by somebody that had a couple of pints and 
uh, he can't play. He can't play the game anymore. I'll assure you, I didn't have a couple of pints, but I, can't, I couldn't play. <laughs> I couldn't play the game anymore. But when you represent me as a manager, then when you let me down, you let the fans down because I'm I'm just I'm just a fan basically. Um, and we had for the first time in my tenure at Hull City, um, we had let the fans down. There were six. I think it was about six and a half thousand travelling fans, and it was Boxing Day. And I know they would have given up the festivities. Christmas Day would have been spent with the family, don't get me wrong, but they would have given up that Christmas Day night enjoyment to make sure that they were on the coach or they were travelling the following day. If I'm not mistaken, it might have been an early kickoff. I, I, I can't remember, but they wanted to go to the, the Etihad. I don't think it was called the Etihad then. Uh, it might have been, I'm not sure. But um, they wanted to go there and, and to see them at half-time, 4-0 down. I never really put finances into perspective there and then, and I should have done. Uh, Rubinho, I think, was playing, and he was 33 million in a transfer fee, and my budget was 16 and a half million. So one player on their team put that into perspective. That was worth twice as much as my budget. So if I had done that, I probably might not have done the half-time team talk. But it was such a poor performance. It was almost Sunday league proportion. The the performance it was lacking. Um, any any kind of cohesion. It was lacking any kind of quality, and it was certainly lacking that work rate, that that um, desire that we always wore on the shirt. You know, the badge. It lacked that in the first half. I thought this deserves a half-time team talk that I used to get in the Benz Park in South Shields. Bobby Davison as well. Mention the Benz Park to Bobby Davison. He'll he'll oh, tell you what <laughs> he'll tell you what half-time team talks are all about. Um, so. Uh, I spoke to Brian Horton. 38th minute, I think the fourth goal went in, if I remember rightly. 38th minute. Might have been Rubinho scored it. And uh, I, said to, I said to Nobby, I said, I'm going to do the team talk over there in front of the fans. said, uh, if you feel strongly about it, no problem. I'll support you. I said it to Steve Parkin, who was my first team coach. And by the way, these two had 1,500 games management, management behind them. And Steve sort of gulped. And then... Um, Never said anything. He didn't, he didn't contradict it or criticise it. He just never said anything. I thought, probably haven't got his vote there, but he didn't want to voice it. <laughs> so I walked onto the pitch in the 45th minute. And the first guy I walked onto the pitch to um, was Ian Ashby, who proudly had captained the club in all four divisions. Brilliant. Absolute brilliant. What a, what a legend at Hull City. And we're in the Premier League and we've just got our backsides kicked at half-time 4-0. And I walked towards Ash. He was like five yards on the field of play. I walked towards him and he was like looking at me, where are you going, Gaffer? And I went uh, just over there in front of the fans. He just turned around. Just Did completely turned. Didn't say a word. Just turned around and walked. And, and then one, two, three. Next thing you know, everybody's following me. And, um, and I, I hear it's uh, recorded afterwards. I hear the commentator say, oh, oh. Oh, the manager's walking on the and and it's like they can't believe it. And I'm thinking, this is gonna have massive repercussions. By the time I sat everybody down, this is gonna have massive repercussions. So I delivered what I needed to deliver and then chased everybody back inside and then made two substitutions fairly quickly. And uh, one of the subs scored, Craig Fagan. Craig Fagan, who is now going into coaching and management. 
Craig played for Derby. Yeah, he did. Yeah, when we, when we got yeah. promoted. Yeah, just before. Yeah, he did. Yeah, Craig, Craig Fagan, and uh, Craig's now under twenty three coach at Southend. Very close to getting a job last time, actually, for the the, the first team. And Figs, you talked to Figs about it. Wow, he loved it. Absolutely loved it. Ooh, we'll have some of this. And that that's because he was like that. That's because anybody that was like, ooh, we'll have some of this, was all for it. Anybody that was sort of a little bit squirmish, a little bit squeamish, you know, didn't really want to do it, really thought I was going to maybe call them out in front of six and a half thousand fans, which would have been a rarity. Um, but I was, people couldn't hear what I had to say, you know, which was good news. <laughs> and, when Jimmy when Jimmy Bullard did the celebration the following year when he scored the penalty, how did you how did you feel about that? Was that did you just take it in good humour? Absolutely, Blake. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Trying to get this uh, noose around my neck that was tightening every time people every time I I was on a race course once and it was twenty five. It's just at Wolverhampton race course and uh, I was watching my horse running and twenty five blokes just sat down in front of me on a stag do. <laughs> And I'm like, they wanted me to, to berate them. They're on a stag do and they wanted me to berate them. I'm like, oh, dear me. And, <laughs> oh, um, and it, it happened on, on quite a few occasions, you know, not in public places. like you know. So it was really ridiculed to a certain extent. It took a lot of um, bottle to do it. Um, regretfully, I opened up the changing room, which was the only regret I have. I opened up the changing room to... The public, and I thought one or two people couldn't handle it. Um, the stronger ones still survived it, and then uh, and the rest history. Looking back over over your career, then I always ask this at the end, and it always gets a different, interesting answer. And I, I really enjoy listening to it. Do you have any regrets? Uh, only my mother and father not being able to see me managing the Premier League. I think is the only regret, and you can't do anything about that, can you? And uh, my family's been brilliant for me, you know, all the way through the career. Um, as a player, every game, I had a member of my family, you know, two sisters, mum and dad. One of my sisters lives in Burton. She lives in, she teaches uh, with a brother-in-law, and she teaches at uh, Chelliston. Uh, so I, I, I went to Chelliston School. Yeah, yeah. The, well, you know, Penny... Penny Kane, Martin Kane. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they they were my, my brother-in-law, and my sister, and um, to fail at Derby was a was a regret, and uh, I wish I'd got Derby in a different time. That's all. So that's one regret. Uh, but basically, my mother and father not seeing me, uh, the fruits of their labour, basically mm. on on display. So that's the only regret. Personally, not one. Not one. Uh, I would do everything exactly the same. Um, you are what you are. You can't stop that. And um, uh, you are a product of your your parents, you know, and, and that is the biggest compliment anybody could, could ever say to me. It's been absolutely brilliant. And I really appreciate your time. I know there's, there's a game on soon, so I'm going to let you go. And um, I just want to say, I hope we see you back in, in English football soon. And I think there might be a vacancy at Derby, so... If you, fancy, <laughs> if you fancy coming back, mate. <laughs> Only one one proviso that the board of directors has changed. Yeah, <laughs> I can't say too much because I'll get sued. But I don't think it. I don't think the, the whole situation has changed at all. To be honest. All oh, right, right. Yeah. Okay. 
No, that's a pleasure, Blake. And uh, like I say, I've got no regrets. Uh, anybody from Derby wants to ever speak to me, you've got my email address. You want to mm. hand that out, you can do no problem at all. Oh, lovely. Well, thank you very much for your time, Phil. Good luck with everything over there and hope to see you back in England soon. Top man. Cheers, Blake. Thanks for that.